Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Now, we've all read the Ten Commandments. We all know the Ten Commandments. Some of us, some of us may be able to even name the Ten Commandments. You co-sponsored a bill requiring the display of the Ten Commandments in the House of Representatives and the Senate. Mm -hmm. What are the Ten Commandments? <laughs> what are all of them? You want me to name them yeah. all? please. Um, um, don't murder. Don't lie. Mm -hmm. Don't steal. Uh, I can't name them all. But a lot of us just don't understand what some of the commandments are actually about. So let's look at Exodus 27. You shall not take the name of the Lord, Lord there is Yahweh, the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. What does taking God's name in vain mean? Is it like a high school girl going, oh my goodness, and then, uh, you know, OMG, writing a, like a LOL thing on Facebook, they write OMG. Is that taking the Lord's name in vain? Is, is that what they mean here? Or... Or is this a very specific context that is readily accessible to Israel but might not be readily accessible to modern Christians because we, as modern Christians, just don't see God the same way that they saw God at these times throughout biblical history, even in the New Testament. We'll talk about that today. The function of oath-keeping in divine omniscience. This is a very ancient concept that's uh, found among all the peoples of the ancient worlds, anyone who had a God who had some sort of omniscience and some sort of power to enforce, because of those two properties, because the God could act and God could see, God became the de facto enforcer of oaths, of contracts. Two different individuals want to promise each other one thing or another, they will swear in front of God because God is the one who acts and God is the one who has taken it upon himself to enforce these contracts, these, these oaths. And these contracts might not have anything to do with morality. It might be like, I will pay you this much money after you deliver the sheep or something like that. And uh, you swear before God and God would enforce that. If you didn't pay what you're supposed to pay, you would be in trouble before Yahweh God. Think about that. Think about how that operates and how their mindset was. What function God served in that society in order for them to think that way. Is that, are modern Christians, do modern Christians think that way, that God will enforce their oaths? Throughout the Bible, we have quote after quote, we have a historical example after historical example of not only Yahweh talking about these types of oaths, endorsing these types of oaths, enforcing these types of oaths, but other people spread out throughout the Bible doing the same thing. The Apostle Paul was big on these types of oaths. The first thing that we're going to do to start this study is we're going to turn to the book The All-Knowing God by Raphael Pettizzoni. Now this is a book we've alluded to several times on this podcast. We've read sections of this book. What this book is, is it's an ancient survey of all these ancient religions around the world and their ideas of omniscience. How omniscience functioned throughout uh, ancient cultures. And he covers... Petazoni covers all these different cultures from ancient Sumeria to Egypt to Israel and Yahweh. He talks about Yahweh in here. The Teutons, the Slavs, uh, ancient Ch China, even Africa, these different ideas of omniscience. And one theme that we find throughout most of these cultures, most of, not, not all the cultures necessarily, but uh, that uh, omniscience and oath keeping were 
inherently linked. If a God had some sort of omniscience and some sort of power to enact, it was that God to whom oaths were made so that that God would become the enforcer of those oaths. And we're going to go over some very telling examples of how this operated in those religions and those cultures, and then we could compare those ideas to the Bible. It's not that the Bible uh, drew on those ideas or were crafted out of those ideas, but they're similar ideas and similar cultures written in similar ways. They're, they're images of each other, just the functionality. It's not like uh, Israel is a separate religion from all religions on earth and they have no truth in them. Remember, even in the Bible, there are these other gods that the other nations are subservient to. So we'll start with ideas that are found in Rome and ideas that are mirrored in Greece. Because remember, the Roman deities overlapped with the Greek deities. Zeus was Jupiter. And we find that both Zeus and Jupiter were gods of oaths. They would be oath enforcers. Because they were associated with the air, they were sky gods, and they saw everything, oaths were made before them. And, and interestingly enough, they were made in open-air temples, temples without roofs. And what this did for this oath-taking was to so that the vision of Zeus or Jupiter would not be blocked. Remember back to Job where they, they wonder, can clouds block God's vision? Of course, the answer is no. Yahweh's vision is not blocked by clouds, but it is an ancient conception that people cannot be seen if they're in some sort of shady place. In Ezekiel, you have Israelites sacrificing to false gods in dark places. And God brings Ezekiel to this uh, door in the wall, this door that he finds, it's a, like a magical door, leads him inside and he's able to see all these uh, demonic things done in dark places. And God's point is, I could see into the dark. You can't hide. Those, those Israelites, they think they could hide from God. They think that God's vision can be blocked by roofs, but can be blocked by some sort of covering on top of them. But God's point, Yahweh's point in the Bible is I could see through these things. These things do not hide you from me. I could search you out wherever you go. That's a common theme within the Bible. Where can you go to hide from me? You can't. I am Yahweh. And we'll cover some of those verses later. But let's look to Jupiter. Let's look to Zeus and see what kind of oath-keeping omniscience they had. So here's Petazoni. Another shrine of the god was to be found on Tabor Island. Where also an inscription to Upiter Uranus, Jupiter, the god of Oos, has been discovered. It is to be noted that the temple of Jupiter Optimus Maximus on the capital had likewise an opening in its roof corresponding to the spot on which, in the central cella, which was that of Jupiter, there stood a stone representing the god Terminus, the deity of boundaries, whereby boundaries and their inviolability were put under the protection of of that god who being a sky god was all seen and therefore was in a position to notice if anyone removed his neighbor's landmark to punish him accordingly we find parallels about this in the bible these landmarks that god sees and enforces here's a passage from genesis 31:49 and mespah for he said the lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight if you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. God is watching. God is making sure. God is watching what you do in, and enforcing the, this oath that we're going to make here. This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you 
and you will not pass over this heap and pillar to me to do harm. So they set up a barrier, a stone altar, a stone pillar, and that's the spot. Neither individual can cross over in God's sight. God, God's the enforcer of this. No one could cross over to do each other harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, which uh, is, are those different gods? Are they the same gods? Are they all Yahweh? Um, maybe they're all Yahweh, as a lot, a lot of commentaries take that approach there. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, and the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. So in the Bible, God is an enforcer of this boundary pillar that is set up. And you see, uh, you see parallels to that in this boundary enforcement by the Roman deities as well. Zeus also has temples with open air where people make oaths before Zeus. And there's, there's statues to Zeus, and, and it's a pretty common thing to swear before Zeus before doing stuff. Here's Petazoni again. The vengeance of Zeus falls especially on the oath-breaker. In the Homeric formula of oaths, Zeus is the first of the deities called upon to witness and to guarantee what is sworn to and to punish any violation of it which may occur. Agamemnon, when he swears, keeps his eyes fixed on heaven. There's a lot of prayers in the Bible where people lift their hands to heaven before they pray. Because Zeus is there, and from there his punishments are sent. So at Olympia, a statue of Zeus Horinkos, Zeus of the oath, before which the competitors took their oath, had in either hand a thunderbolt, which was to punish false swearers. People would go to these uh, ritualistic sites to make these oaths. They'd go to temples, they'd go to statues. In the Bible, you see this as well, where people would go to the temple before God to swear oaths. Here's 1 Kings 8.31. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then here in heaven, this is uh, Solomon talking to God, then here in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. So in Israel, you had people going into the temple of the Lord uh, to swear before God their their issues, their problems, and then God would be the enforcer of those oaths. You see this also in Ecclesiastes. It says this, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty or utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. It's saying, take caution. When you go into the temple, when you go into the house of the Lord, make sure to watch what you say because it will be used against you. It says this, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. People who are foolish make all sorts of promises that they don't keep because they just keep talking and talking. When you vow a vow to God, this is in the temple, do not delay in paying it for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you to sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Just just don't say, oh, I, I didn't mean to make that vow. I, I didn't mean to make that promise. I'm sorry. Why? Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Because God is an avenging God, and he enforces these oaths. This is not God enforcing morality per se, it's God enforcing contractual agreements. Uh, this is not to say in the Bible that breaking oaths is not the equivalent of sinning. It is, 
in the Bible equated with sinning several times when you break your promises. That's why in Ecclesiastics, it's better to keep your mouth shut and not make these promises, not make these vows before God, than to get yourself uh, enforced by, by someone who takes these oaths seriously, which is God, Yahweh, the enforcer of oaths. Turning back to Petazoni, let's talk about his assessment of Israel and Yahweh's omniscience. He writes this, Divine omniscience appears in the book of Jeremiah as knowledge, particularly with a view to punishment of all that men do, the ways of men, their speech, and their most intimate thoughts, like sight, which nothing can escape, examining the depths of the hearts, the hearts and reins. So God's omniscience has a particular use throughout the Bible, and it is to enforce justice on earth. Knowledge combined with power equals a responsibility to act, a responsibility to enforce. So scrolling down, let's read what he says about oath-taking in Yahweh in the Bible. He says, More often in historical books, the Lord is credited with the power of sight, hearing, and knowledge, applied to a single determinate situations and events affecting mankind. Among these, the conclusion of agreements has a special place. Also, the pronunciation of formal promises and the taking of oaths. And he lists a bunch of verses, and this is just a very, very small sample of what we find in the Bible. And in my research and studies, I just I, there's like countless verses. They are all over the place. You start reading uh, somewhere randomly. And there's oaths before God, taking the Lord's name and using it to promise something of the future, to enforce an oath. The Lord is called upon to witness because he sees, he hears, and he knows. He sees the situations, he hears the word spoken, he knows what is affirmed and undertaken. In all of this, it may be thought there is an implicit virtual omniscience, which is not explicitly mentioned. God is an enforcer of oaths. When Israelites are talking, they assume God is watching. And the atheist in his heart says, there is no God. God won't punish me. God won't act. And uh, the oath taker is swearing allegiance to God in his oath taking. So you will find throughout the biblical text that swearing on Yahweh's name is, is putting yourself under Yahweh's God, lordship, under, uh, as his follower, as his worshiper. People are commanded to swear in his name. Deuteronomy 10.20 You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you should swear. You should be swearing oaths by his name. And Israel was showing infidelity to God. Isaiah 48.1 Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord, and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. In Isaiah, they were swearing by God's name, but swearing falsely. And this is, this is a moral offense to God. They need to be swearing by God and swearing justly, rightly. And God, throughout the Bible, lays down all these swearing rules. And we will get to these swearing rules. But just understand that this is something that people are called upon to do, to swear on the name of God. And it's not just saying, oh, I follow Yahweh. I worship Yahweh. That's not swearing on the name of God. It's, it's making oaths as him as the enforcer, putting our, your trust in God, him as the God who sees and who acts. God is the God of vision. Psalms 10 here, we have an example of an evildoer who doesn't think that God will enforce oaths. Psalms 10, we got a clear instance of a wicked person saying that God will not enforce oaths. God, God does not act. God is... God is aloof, or God doesn't exist to act. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account? But you do see, for you note the mischief and vexation. 
that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. God's role in this is to watch and to judge. God's omniscience and God's power are combined to make him a ruler of the earth, to enforce justice, to right the wrongs, to act. God is a God of action. Proverbs reinforces this. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. So either this means that God is actively watching everyone, the good and the bad, seeing what they do. He just has general omniscience over all the world. Or that his angels are doing this. Eyes of the Lord are often used figuratively for spies or angels or spy network. But either case, the idea is that God knows what people do. God knows what people say. God will bring these people to account. God's watching them. Genesis 16, 13, God is specifically given the name of God of seeing. God is a God who sees. Yahweh in the Bible is a God who knows, a God who sees, a God who watches. A lot of imagery in the Bible is God's looking out on the inhabitants of the earth. Psalms 33, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the heart of them and observes all their deeds. He sits in heaven. He watches. He observes. He sees what they're doing. Remember back to Solomon's prayer, his request of God, that God in heaven listens to the prayers and then enforces those oaths, enforces those promises. God is an enforcer. God is someone who will execute justice, even in contractual relationships. Hebrews 4.13 is a very interesting verse. This is in the New Testament, New Testament, uh, you know, second temple type period. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God's omniscience is linked to his justice. Here's another verse about uh, people not being able to avoid God. God knows where they are. God could track them down. God knows what they're saying. Am I not, am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, Jeremiah 23, 23, and not a God far away. Can a man hide himself in the secret places so I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth? People are like, oh, this is like an omnipresence claim. This is an omniscience claim going on here, declares the Lord. I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. And this goes on to uh, demean and deride false prophets, saying you shouldn't believe these guys. These guys are accursed and that these people will be punished for prophesying in my name. I'm watching them what they're doing. And they're not going to get away with their lies and deceit. Acts 124 is interesting. This is when they're choosing the new 12th apostle. And they got two individuals and they need to decide between the two. And they use God as an arbitrator, God to decide. So they do the casting of lots. Maybe something going on like the Urim and Thurim in the Old Testament where you kind of do this maybe like a chance thing to divine God's will. And that's what they do in Acts 1.24. They allow God to decide between these two individuals because God is the God of knowledge. God is the God who uses this knowledge to decide things. So getting into vows and how to make them and how they're enforced, Numbers 30 is a very interesting chapter within the Bible. It talks about making vows before God. And here's what it says. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds from his mouth. Then it starts talking about women in vows, women and making vows. And this is interesting because what this does, this next part, it sets up this situation in which like a young woman, a girl, maybe a silly girl, people who have girls uh, might understand that. So, some little girls are pretty silly and they, they make very dramatic 
vows and promises and uh, is are those enforceable under this system and the answer is no it, unless it's confirmed by probably a more rational party then it, it, it you can be bound by that oath so a woman makes a vow before the Lord and if uh, her father doesn't hear her to vouchsafe that vow that that's a rational vow then that vow is not enforceable as soon as he finds out about the vow Unless he overrides the vow, that vow stands. So that precludes the situation in which uh, some woman vows to God to do something. The father knows about it and just holds off for a while before invalidating that vow. If you understand that someone's making a ridiculous vow before God, you have to put your foot in right away and say, this vow is null and void. I'm, I'm invalidating this vow because it's not a good vow. Of course, this does not apply to widows and divorced women, women of sound mind and age. <laughs> this even applies uh, when the young woman gets married and moves in with her husband. Her husband has the same uh, parental rights that the father did where he can nullify vows once he knows about the vow. But he can't do that withholding and then nullifying after, after the vow turns to be out to be good or bad. He can't ex post facto void the vow that he already knew about. He's got to put his foot in right away to invalidate any vows before God. Yeah, the whole chapter of Numbers 13 is interesting to read and to understand their culture and their mindset and mentality. Let's turn to Leviticus 6. If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, if he's oppressed his neighbor, found something lost and lied about it, then they pay restitution. But it's violating a breach of faith against the Lord. They're violating some sort of oath. Remember back to our talk about God is an enforcer of boundaries in the Greco-Roman world. Same idea is going on here. These oaths that are made before God, people have to fulfill those oaths or else there's consequences. Here's one of those verses that encourage people to swear by God's name, Jeremiah 12, 16. And it shall come to pass if they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name. As the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall build up in the midst of my people. But if any nation will not listen, then I will utterly pluck him up and destroy it, declares the Lord. So people, they identify with these different deities by whom they swear. These people were swearing by Baal, and God says, Yahweh says, No, you shouldn't be swearing by Baal, you should be swearing by my name. Once you start swearing by my name, I will bless you. You will, you will be fruitful, you will multiply. And if you don't, I will destroy you. Swear by my name. It's a commandment to Israel in Jeremiah. Deuteronomy 23.21 is also a requirement to fulfill oaths before God. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. If you violate your oath before God, you are sinning. So that's why you get that Ecclesiastes passage saying it's better just to not make the vow at all than to make this vow and violate it because you're putting yourself in the hands of an angry God. Jeremiah 4.2, And if you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, the nation shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. Just do a text search on as the Lord lives. This is a, a very common swear word. Swear word? Is that the swear phrase? As the Lord lives, they're swearing on the living God. We could keep going on. This concept is just everywhere in the Bible. People swearing by God's name. Jesus even gets into it in Matthew 23. What was happening was these people didn't want to swear by the name of God. 
And uh, they wanted to make these like lesser oaths. And so they would swear by, not by God, but by the temple. Oh, I swear by the temple. And Jesus's point in Matthew 23 is that doesn't work. You don't, you don't uh, bypass responsibility because you're still swearing on God if you're swearing on the temple. He says this, and you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by the oath. Do you see how these people are making little rules to get around what, what you can swear on, what you can't, what makes it enforceable, what makes it not? He says, you blind men. He just starts and he just says, he just insults these guys. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? The, the altar is, of course, greater than the gift. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. So God dwells in the temple and people are going to the temple to make these oaths. Remember back to our talk about the practice of coming to the temple and making your oaths before God in the temple. A lot of these oaths were made before God. We have historical examples of that happening. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Jesus says you can't get around swearing on God. You, you're not going to do use these little tricks of logic to get around enforceability of these oaths. It's not going to happen. Now, moving on to his historical examples, uh, they're just everywhere in the Bible. Just turn to any like historical narrative where people are talking among each other. There's swearing on God all the time. I was randomly reading today about the witch of Endor and the situation in which Saul approached her to conjure up Samuel to talk about... Maybe a future prophecy going on in that conjuring of Samuel, or maybe just just a, a promise of uh, Saul's death immediately. The next day comes from Samuel. How does Samuel get this knowledge? Is it like a mystical knowledge of the future? Is it God directing him to say this such that that thing will happen? God's going to enforce the death of Saul and his kids the next day. We don't know exactly what's going on there, but in this text, Saul swears to this witch because all the witches are being put to death, and uh, he's the one doing it. And he says, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. So he's swearing on God's name. And you'll just find these phrases throughout the text of the Bible. And if, if your mind is not trained to pick up what's going on here, you're not going to understand these are oaths before God. That this is, God is the enforcer. It's not a throwaway line. It's not like in modern language, people say, I swear to God, I will punch you in the face if you do that again. And that's that's not like a, a it's a, it's a throwaway line. It's, it's meant emphatically and it's meant non-literally and it's meant uh, hyperbolically in modern language. But it was not functioning like that in this time. God was actually an enforcer of oaths. God was listening to these oaths, and God would ensure these oaths are fulfilled in this time. As the Lord lives, and that's that phrase that we talked about already, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. He's swearing to God that she's not going to be punished for this conjuring of Samuel. And she wasn't. He kept his oath. And the text makes that seem like a good thing even though it's also a good thing to be putting to death any sorcerers in the text. Scrolling up to Numbers 5, this is an interesting section of text as well. So what this has to do with is adulterers. And what would happen in Israel is if you suspected your wife of adultery, you'd bring her to the temple, and then she would perform this oath before God. See, watch this. Numbers 5.18, And the priest shall set the woman before the Lord. They're, go they're going to the temple, they're going to the tabernacle, 
or whatever to get this oath from this woman that she did not commit adultery. Basically, there's a curse that's put on this water that if she drinks it and she's an adulterer, her womb will swell up and uh, she'll like die maybe. Uh, that's what's going on here. So you figure out if someone's an adulterer by making them take an oath before God that they are not an adulterer or they're agreeing to this this curse before they engage in this ritual. And depending on the outcome of this ritual, you, you find out if the woman is an adulterer or not. This is instant uh, enforcement of oath. This is uh, like a divine enforcement against adultery, at least in women. You find in Ruth, people swearing before God, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you, lie down until the morning. Well, did, did they do any sexual activity, Ruth? Uh, is that what's going on here? I'm going to have sex with you, and then I'm going to redeem you. That, that might be, I, I promise to God, if uh, we have conjugal relations through the night, maybe that's what's happening here, then uh, I will marry you, right? Genesis 24, Abraham makes his uh, son swear not to take wives from the daughters of the Canaanites. Yeah, he's like, get, get, get a good uh, Israelite girl, and uh, swear to God about this. 1 Samuel 30, 15, King David is pursuing his enemies, comes across this servant who is sick and could not be taken along. And he says, uh, lead us to your former master and our enemies so that we could kill him. He says, just swear to God that uh, you won't kill me and uh, then I'll take you. And they, they of course, swear. And, and Israel's enemies uh, tricked Israel before into oaths and the oaths couldn't be violated. So like there's there's time in the Old Testament where uh, Israel's enemies come to them and say, hey, we're a people from far off and we, we've heard about your mighty power and let's let's make an oath together and uh, a peace oath and we'll be your servants. We'll be your servants. We'll work for you. And Israel's like, okay, we'll do that. And then they make the oath and then it turns out these are the next guys that they wanted to fight and kill. But uh, now they've already made the oath so they can't violate this oath. The oath was this important. It, it was immaterial that the people lied about where they were actually from uh, it was, they, they used cleverness in order to not be exterminated. And, and oath-keeping, oath oath-keeping. The oath was important. It was a very important facet in the lives of Israel. Some non-Pauline oaths in the New Testament. In Revelation, we have an angel swearing that there's going to be no more delay. He says this, And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea, this is Revelation 10.5, and on the land, raising his right hand to heaven, right hand to heaven, you put your hand to heaven, you look to heaven, you swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, there would be no more delay. The angel swearing to God that there's going to be no more delay. Matthew 26, uh, 36, this is Jesus' trial. And the high priest says to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in clouds of heaven. And of course, this is blasphemy. It's blasphemy because they see Jesus as swearing by the living God and swearing falsely. And so this would be blasphemy. And then they kill him, perhaps, is what's going on here. And very lastly, uh, we're going to talk about Paul, and he likes to swear before God and swear on God and use this oath-keeping to emphasize his points. Galatians 1.20, in what I'm writing to you, before God, I do not lie. He's swearing on God. I swear to God, I am not lying. I swear to God, he's the enforcer of this. He will punish me if I am lying. 
I swear I don't lie, this is what happens. Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5.27, I put you under an oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all brothers. Swear to me before God that you're just going to read my letter to all these people. Romans 1.9, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you. God, God is the enforcer on this. I'm, I'm doing what I'm saying I'm doing. 2 Corinthians 1.23, But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. If I'm lying to you, God punish me. God do something, uh, make sure that I am not lying. God is the enforcer of this. Paul is swearing to God. And what makes this particularly interesting is that you have Jesus and James basically trying to discourage people from swearing to God. And their take on the matter is we shouldn't have to swear before God in order to keep our promises. Our yeses should be yeses and our noes should be no. We shouldn't have a divine enforcer. There, there should be no need for that. We should be truthful people. James 5.12, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is echoing Ecclesiastes. Remember, the fool just keeps talking and promising all sorts of stuff, and he's putting himself under these restrictions and obligations. And if he doesn't fulfill, there's consequences. And to James, in James 5.12, people shouldn't be swearing because there's consequences if uh, you're swearing falsely. We need to just be truthful people without swearing. Matthew 5:33. this is Jesus. Again, you have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but perform to the Lord what you have sworn. And in Matthew 5, Jesus is doing these intensifications of the law. The coming kingdom was at hand, and people had to reform their lives and uh, make their lives better and more structured in pre preparation for this coming kingdom. And Matthew 5 has a series of these intensifications. Here's Bart Ehrman about what's going on in Matthew 5. An antithesis is a contrary statement. In the sixth antithesis is recorded in the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus states a Jewish law and then sets his interpretation of that law over against it. I should emphasize that Matthew does not portray Jesus as contradicting the law. For example, he does not say, You have heard it said, you shall not commit murder, but I say to you that you should. Instead, even here in the antithesis, Jesus urges his followers to adhere to the law, indeed, to do so even more righteously than the religious leaders of Israel. The contrasts of the antithesis then are between the way the law is commonly interpreted and the way Jesus interprets it. In all of these antitheses, he goes to the heart of the law in the question, to its root intention, as it were, and inserts that his followers adhere to that rather than the letter of the law as strictly interpreted. So these are intensifications of the law. So people are commanded to swear to God throughout the Bible, and Jesus does this intensification that, uh, no, we, sh we shouldn't have to swear to God. We just need our yeses to mean yes and our noes to mean no. He says this, Again, you have heard it was said of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is its footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. 
Let what you say sim be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So Jesus' concern, what is it? It's uh, people are swearing to God, which is actually a legitimate activity throughout the Bible. People do it. The patriarchs did it. God commands it throughout the Bible. And Jesus wants us just to focus on the yes and no and be true to our word and not swearing on something higher than that because what what that does is it demeans the rest of our promises, the rest of our commitments. If, if we only perform when swearing, then that makes us dishonest people. And he's trying to purify us as people, making our yes mean yes and our no mean no. But Paul swears. If Paul swears. Everyone swears throughout the Bible. Everyone swears on God. I don't think this is Jesus and James in James 5.12 calling the patriarchs and Paul evil. Instead, I think this, these are the general principles that they're laying down that we need to be just trustworthy and honest people. Lastly, let's talk about God. God swears on himself throughout the Bible because there is no greater being. And uh, your mind might instantly go to the Abrahamic promise of an eternal people, a unilateral promise that God swore. But there's other times in the Old Testament as well that God swears upon himself. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalms 110.4. This is referenced in Hebrews and it says this. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So Hebrews 7 is setting up the order of Melchizedek, the priesthood of Melchizedek, up against the traditional priesthood. And he's saying, because God swore with an oath this one, and he didn't swear with an oath that other one, uh, this is the one he's going to remain true to, the other one he could change his mind on. Hebrews is about God being able to change his mind on non-oath-taking promises. Hebrews 6 uh, is still in Hebrews we're talking. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise of the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. God doesn't promise everything with oaths. So this is a special promise that God is guaranteeing with an oath. And what does God swear upon? Because uh, you have to swear upon something greater than yourself. There's nothing greater than God. So God swears upon himself. So by that two unchangeable things in which it is possible for God to lie, and people are like, oh, God can't lie about anything ever. It's not part of his character. No, th this is in reference to a specific oath that God took and swore upon himself, which is a special type of oath. It's, it's like a more enforceable oath than than normal things. And so that's that's what this is in reference to. This, this special promise backed up by a special oath swore upon himself. It's not how, not how these verses are normally taken by people who want to engage in negative theology. They're cut from context and then they're turned into negative theology. God is, uh, in, in, by his nature and uh, by metaphysics, unable to sin. He, there's, he, he can't do it. He just, it's not that he doesn't sin, but he can't sin. He just, he can't do it. Is there a claim from this verse? That's not what it's talking about. It's not the context of the verse. And in fact, the context suggests opposite because they're confirming this special promise with these special means, which means it doesn't apply to everything. We got Jeremiah, Isaiah, God is swearing on himself. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. He's saying, I swear by myself, I'm going to put the earth in subjugation. Okay, yeah, you could do that. That's, that's something you can fulfill. You have the power to do. 
we got more of this idea in Psalms 132 of God swearing a special oath, a special oath that is enforceable and has special significance because it is an oath. Not everything that God gives is an oath. Not everything. And so not everything has this special prominence. Psalms 132.11, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. It's a special oath. He fulfilled it. So real quick, let's talk about what we've learned so far. First of all, God is a God of omniscience in the Bible. And this omniscience combined with power creates a requirement to execute justice. It puts God in a position to enforce contracts and oaths. And in the ancient world, throughout the ancient world, even in uh, Hellenistic cultures and uh, just everywhere, just just uh, try to get the book, uh, The All-Knowing God, and look at these different cultures and how oaths worked in conjunction with omniscience. If a god was omniscience and had power and enforce, they would enforce these oaths. And throughout the Bible, God is an oath enforcer. Yahweh takes it upon himself to enforce contracts between third parties. They have nothing to do with morality. It's not like, oh, you, you just murdered a guy, now I'm going to go kill you. It's like you made a contract with someone and you violated your end. God is the enforcer of that contract. And that's not a concept that modern Christians really accept because they don't see God as a God of active watching. They see God as more of even a, even a moral police. God is a God that punishes the wicked, per se, but not necessarily takes seriously people who swear covenants before him. Because in their views, God's omniscience doesn't work that way. God is, God is like, uh, uh, has eternal omniscience of all things and sits by passively as people do stuff on earth. His omniscience is not functional, per se. He doesn't uh, use it for for a particular purpose. It's weird to us to think of God is watching us take this oath, and so he has the responsibility to enforce that oath. Just weird to us. And it would be even weirder to think God has eternally known this oath that these two people are going to take, and God is eternally going to try to enforce these oaths. It's weird. It's, It's a weird concept, especially when some oaths can be overturned by husbands or fathers. But throughout the Bible, even in the New Testament, their concept of Yahweh didn't change. Yahweh is a God who watches the world and watches oaths being taken. People bring their oaths to Yahweh. And God often talks about his dwelling place in the tabernacle or in, uh, in the temple. And people bring their oaths before God. And it gives that oath a special meaning. And God enforces those oaths with uh, special enforcement. Location-based oaths. That's another weird concept for Christianity quite common in the Bible. Anyways, without uh, stretching this podcast on too long, really, this, this, this concept of oath enforcement, put yourself in the ancient world, the ancient mindset. When you're reading the Bible and come across these strange passages, try to understand God in the way that the ancient Israelites understood God. And these, these passages will make a lot more sense. It's, it's like when you read Augustine, read his works, if you understand Neoplatonism, all these little phrases and concepts just jump out to you. He says, oh, I saw this in my mind's eye. And a normal reader will just read right past that. Where what he's talking about, he's literally talking about introspective reasoning in which he retreats into himself and tries to ascend to the one to gain this platonic knowledge. These, these phrases make sense only in their ancient context. You have to understand the context of how they viewed God, how they viewed God's functioning omniscience, and how it operated, what, what were the expectations of who God was 
and how his attributes operated. It's not this eternal omniscience. It's this active watching of the world and active watching and enforcing of oaths. God sees the oath and God becomes the enforcer of that oath. This is their concept. All right, if you have any questions or comments, throw that on the YouTube page, start a thread on the God is Open Facebook group, send questions to God is Open questions at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.